0: All things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. He passed away several years ago, but John Klaus was a defense attorney who lived in Evansville, Indiana. And before he died, Mr. Klaus, he got around. In fact, for a time, his name appeared in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's most traveled man. I spoke to him one day on the telephone. I was interested in his story, and I gave him a call. At the time, he had spent half a million dollars traveling to 308 of the Earth's 309 nations and territories. Imagine all of the stamps that Mr. Klaus collected in his passport. He once told a reporter that the friendliest people on Earth live in Scotland, and that Argentina has the best stakes. I'm sure you needed to know that. When I spoke to John Klaus, he was waiting for a war to subside so that he could get permission to travel to the small island in the Indian Ocean called Diego Garcia, the last of the territories that he needed to visit to have accomplished, to have traveled all the way around the world. I never heard whether he made it or not, but based on his determination, I'm sure that he did. But there's one more location that I hope John Klaus experienced from my conversation. I think he did. If he was a Christian, he lived in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, it doesn't matter where else you go, you've missed life's most vital destination. Realize, as a new creation in Christ, my life, your life, bumps up against a different realm. Another realm. Physically, I can travel the globe. I can see some amazing scenery and sights. But spiritually, in Christ, I can perceive God's presence. I can know His peace. I can know His power. In Him, the awareness of God and His blessings are just as real, just as heartfelt as the fog in London or as the humidity in Atlanta or as the heat in Phoenix, or as the rain in Seattle, in Christ is the land of grace and glory. Globetrotters like John Klaus, they get around by car, or by bus, or by air. But we who live in Christ do so by faith. And this is what the book of Ephesians is all about. It depicts the lay of the land for those of us who are in Christ Jesus This phrase, in Christ, or one of its derivatives, occurs 13 times in these first 14 verses here in chapter 1. Notice the bookends of today's text. Verse 7 starts, in him. While verse 10 ends, in him. And in between is a travel itinerary. Ephesians lists who we are and what we have in Christ. It helps us to see ourselves as God sees us, In Christ Jesus. We're told in chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In him we're rich spiritually. In him we're somebody. And it's not because of anything we've done or can do. It comes with the turf. It's ours in Christ by faith. We begin this morning in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You know, the ancient world was stalked by the guilt of sin. The Greeks believed in a person that when a person sinned, the goddess Nemesis hunted them down and delivered them over to be punished. You know, today, whatever it is we fear will bring us down, we speak of as our nemesis. In one of his plays, Shakespeare put it into the mouth of one of his characters, these words, My conscience hath a thousand tongues, and every tongue brings in a different tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. You know, all men sin, and even if they deny it publicly, deep down inside, their conscience knows they're wrong. Sin is our problem and punishment is our plight. Even in our modern world where folks like to deny the existence of sin or excuse it away or cover it up or laugh it off, when it gets real quiet, like in the dark of the night, and we can't help but to listen to our conscience, we know we're wrong. The honest person is still stalked by their sin. A guilty conscience is a terrible nemesis it eats away at our tranquility. It nips at our otherwise comfortable life. But oh, how life changes when our sins are forgiven. And when we know it, when we realize it, when we stop denying and start confessing, God forgives us of all our sin. He literally carries it all away. And notice here in our text, verse 7, it's the forgiveness of sins, plural, it means all of our sin, evils committed in your past, rebellious attitudes you might be harboring right now, even future missteps and foibles. If you're in Him, God goes ahead and He forgives you of all your sin on behalf of what Jesus has done for you. Isn't that amazing? In the Old Testament, a ritual took place on one of the Jewish holy days, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It illustrated the of God's marvelous forgiveness. The high priest would lay his hands on the head of a goat. It was called the scapegoat. It's where we get our modern expression for someone to blame, a scapegoat. Well, the priest would lay his hands on the goat's head, the scapegoat, and he would confess his sins and the sins of the nation. And then he would send the goat off into the wilderness to never return. The rabbi said that men were posted all along a line 13 miles long to make sure that the goat passed from person to person until it finally reached the end of, its, end of the line. That's when it was released out into a sea of sand to be lost forever. And once the goat was gone from sight, word then ricocheted back from person to person all along the line that their sin was gone forever. When it finally reached the temple, the people erupted in praise. They had now been forgiven, and it had all been forgotten. Their sin had disappeared, never to be heard from again. The people's load had been lifted. Their sorrow had been replaced with joy, their guilt with relief. What a relief it is to know that your sins have been forgiven. It reminds me of the migrant worker who was picking cotton, He was toting this huge bale of cotton over his shoulder. One of the fellows that he had been witnessing to, one of the fellow workers, asked him, he said, You've been talking about Jesus. Tell me, how do you know when you've been forgiven? Well, without turning around, the man just dropped the load from off his shoulder. He asked, How do you know I've dropped this bale? You know because the load is gone. The burden's gone. It's been lifted. When a person is forgiven, the load gets lighter. The guilt is gone. Peace now pervades where turmoil tormented. There once was a company in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that published a notice they put on the office bulletin board. It said, to err is human, to forgive is company policy. (laughs) Well, God is in the business of forgiveness. For those who are in Christ, forgiveness is company policy. I love the Psalm 103 and verse 42. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I love that, not just for what it says, but for what it doesn't. It doesn't say from the nor- as far as the north is from the south. That would limit his forgiveness. For you can go north to a point and then you're going south again. But you can go east to west forever and ever and ever. Micah chapter 7 verse 19 speaks to God. You have cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Think of the deepest parts of the ocean. Out in the Pacific, the Marianas Trench is 35,000 feet deep. Your sins have been buried in the depths of the ocean. One commentator added, and then God posted a no fishing sign just to be sure. Here's a soothing quote. God pardons like a mother. He kisses the offense into everlasting forgiveness. I'm sorry if this is a big deal to you. Maybe you hadn't sinned as much as I have. But oh, how I relish and how I am so thankful for God's forgiveness. And Paul tells us that God is also able. He's able to forgive us because he has redeemed us through the blood of his son. This is wonderful. You know, there were six million slaves in the Roman Empire at the time of Paul. And most of the Romans, they treated their slaves like a piece of furniture to be swapped and sold. When a slave wore out, he was usually just thrown out. But there were a few benevolent citizens who would buy their slaves in order to set them free. The word Paul uses here in verse 7, redemption, means to liberate by paying a ransom. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He's purchased us in order to set us free. He paid the price that was on your head in order to give you a new lease on life. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 tells us, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You remember what Jesus told the soldiers who came to arrest him in John 18 verse 8? Even then he said, If you seek me... Then let these go. I like that. Even in that moment, Jesus was arrested so that his followers could be set free. And in the next day, he was crucified for the same reason. One man wrote, Jesus blew everything apart. And when I saw where the pieces had landed, I knew I was free. In him, we have redemption. To be redeemed means more than forgiveness. It means freedom from sin and the guilt that comes with it and the law and the pressure to stack up and all the feelings of failure. We've been set free. A.J. Gordon was a famous pastor. One day he saw a little boy walking down the street with a cage full of birds. He asked him where he'd gotten his feathered friends. The little boy said, I trapped them out in the field. Gordon asked him what he planned to do with them. Little boy said rather nonchalantly, he says, Well, I'm gonna play with them for a while, and then I'm gonna kill them and I'm gonna feed them to my cat. Well, Dr. Gordon, he asked the boy how much money would it take for him to, to buy the birds? He said, Mister, you don't want these birds. They're just field birds. They don't sing so good. Gordon asked him if he'd take $2 for the whole lot. The little boy was happy to take the money. He took it and stuck it in his pocket and went off whistling. Well, A.J. Gordon, he took these birds to his church. And he opened up the cage and he set them all free. And that Sunday morning, he stood in his pulpit holding up that empty cage. And he recounted the story. He said, that little boy said that the birds couldn't sing so well. But when I released them from that cage, they went singing away in the blue. And it seems they were singing, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. You know, I'll bet there's some people here today who are like those field birds. Who feel trapped in a cage. In a cage of despair. In a cage of guilt. You're in bondage to your sin. Satan has been playing with you. And when he's done, he's going to feed you to the alley cats. Author Alexander McLaren, he describes your plight. He says, some of you are your own tyrants. The worst part of you has gotten the upper hand. Mutineers that ought to have been down under the hatches and shackled have taken possession of the deck and clapped the captain and his officers. They are driving the ship, that is you, onto the rocks as hard as they can. Do you feel that way this morning? Is your life out of control? Are you being governed by sin? This is why you need a swashbuckling Savior. One who knows no fear. One who dares to draw his sword on the devil and his henchmen. A Savior who can liberate you. Who can set your vessel free from the pirates of perversion and from the rebels of rage and from a mutineer called pride. I got just a Savior for you. His name is Jesus Christ. Paul says he redeemed us through his blood. Now don't miss that. Through his blood. Understand God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. He said let there be light and the universe began to glow. He spun the stars out into their orbits. He worked miracles with his hands. But he didn't redeem us with his power. God is omniscient. He knows all secrets. He's all-knowing. He knows the mysteries of the universe. But he didn't redeem us with his wisdom. God is rich. The psalmist says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Why? Gold is so plentiful in heaven, they use it as asphalt. They pave the streets with it. But as wealthy as he is, God didn't redeem us with his riches. No. Hey, Rather than his power or his wisdom or his riches, God used the one commodity more powerful than his power and wiser than his wisdom and richer than his riches. He redeemed us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. There's a hymn we used to sing. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonder-working power in the blood. The blood of Jesus speaks of his sacrifice and love and humility and empathy and everything that's in his heart. God said the wages of sin is death. From the beginning, there was a price to be paid for sin. Don't say that sin doesn't hurt. Well, I'm not hurting anybody. No, there's a price to be paid for your sin. Trust me. And thus, the spotless blood of Jesus became redemption's purchase price. It's through the precious blood that we've been forgiven and redeemed. In the Revised Standard Version, Hebrews 9, verse 22 reads, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It takes the blood. For years, John Krakowski was known as America's blood donor champion. The American Association of Blood Banks honored the 62-year-old at a ceremony. Krakowski had lost his arm at the age of six. He was rejected three times for military service in World War II. But Joe found a way to make a contribution. Since that time, he has donated 31 gallons of his own blood. And understand, the human body holds 10, 12 pints maybe. Thus, Joe has donated more than 20 times the amount of his own blood, the total of his own blood. Joe makes this comment. He says, giving blood makes you feel like you're contributing life itself. There's no more precious a gift than life. Money can't buy the joy of giving blood to help someone who needs it. And I think this expresses Jesus' motivation. In the shedding of his blood, he has given us his life. Most of us have experienced some form of rejection in our lives. Some of you more than others. Perhaps you've been abandoned by a parent. Maybe you were left by a spouse. Betrayed by a friend. Even ignored by a child. We've been made to feel of little value. And I've mentioned this before, but today's fatherless generation is particularly prone to feelings of rejection. There are people today who try to cover up their hurts with drugs and with sex and with cutting and with alcohol and even suicide. One young woman, she remembers the day her dad walked out of her life. He left her mom for a younger woman. And she says this, she says, I was alone, scared, confused. I hated everyone. I lost trust in everyone. I haven't heard from my dad in over four years. I used to sit next to the phone for a call. Now I've lost all hope. I think there's lots of young women today who are still waiting on a call from their dad. We all long to know that we're valued, don't we? The cry of the human heart is to be loved hey, take a class in basic economics and you'll learn the law of supply and demand. The principle says that the value of a product is determined not by the cost of its production or even by the intrinsic worth of its components, but by the price that people are willing to pay for that commodity. Recently, a 1911 Ty Cobb baseball card was valued at a whopping $273,000. $273,000. Can you believe it? I'll bet the cumulative cost of that cardboard and the ink that went into it and even the fee for the artist who did the painting probably cost less than five bucks. The value of the card was nothing; has nothing to do with the card itself, but it has everything to do with what someone was willing to pay to receive it. Someone paid top dollar. Hey, there's not a large supply of 1911 Ty Cobb cards. And apparently, there's great demand. Thus, the law of supply and demand has driven up its price tag. And now you need to know that the spiritual law of supply and demand also has driven up your price tag. When it comes to you, there's not a big supply. I mean, God only made one. You're unique, and you're also in great demand. For as we've already read, God loves you. He chose you before the foundation of the world. He adopted you in Christ. That means he wants you. He has accepted you. He pays to redeem you with the priceless blood of his son. You need to stop measuring your value based on your own intrinsic worth or your good deeds or what other people think of you. What's your market value, friend? What has God paid for your redemption? The blood of his only son. And that's what makes you of infinite value and worth. If you can't leave this morning with your head held high, can't help you. You should know how much God loves you. I love the story of the gingerbread man. The moment the grandma pulled him out of the oven, he jumped up off the cookie sheet and he started to talk to grandma. Run, run as fast as you can, but nobody's going to catch this gingerbread man. Through the street, she chased him. The, lo- the gingerbread man running as fast as he could just ahead of grandma. Finally, he ducked into the local bakery and he jumped up on the shelf. But the grandma spotted him. She walked in and she snatched him. But that's when the baker shouted, Wait a minute, that'll be 10 cents. She had to buy the gingerbread man that she'd made. But she never bought it to cost. She gave the baker his price, and she took the gingerbread man. And as she walked home, she told this gingerbread man, She said, First I made you, and now I bought you. You are really mine. And that's what God says about you. Hey, he fashioned you from your mother's womb. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet the moment you came out of and you jumped off the pan, you've been rebelling and running ever since. You little gingerbread man. And he's had to chase you down. And now he's purchased you. He made you and now he's bought you. My, you are really His. He must really want you. And according to verse 7, you've been redeemed and forgiven according to the riches of his grace. According to means proportion to. You've been redeemed in proportion to the riches of his grace. God's forgiveness toward me is not in proportion to my goodness, but it's in proportion to his grace. That means there's no limits to his forgiveness. For there's no limits to his grace. My righteousness and worth and good works are in short supply. But God has an infinite reservoir of grace. And it's out of his grace that you and I are forgiven. If I go down to the bank and I announce that I'm here to pay off my house loan, the banker's going to ask me a good question. Show me the money. They know I don't have that amount of money. But if Arthur blank walked in on my behalf and offered to pay my note, they wouldn't flinch, would they? They'd know that Arthur has ample resources. Realize your redemption and forgiveness was purchased not with your meager righteousness and good works, but it was purchased from the deep pockets of a God of grace. Take consolation in that. The measure of his gift is his immeasurable grace. And then notice verse 8. Paul says of God's grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. God makes his grace to abound in our direction. That word abound, it means to flow over the brink, to flow beyond its limits, to overflow, to superabound. In other words, God has gone overboard. Understand, he has lavished his grace upon us. He has made a spectacle of his generosity. That's why it's okay for us to get a little carried away with grace, to relish God's grace, to go a little overboard with grace, for that is what God has done himself. Psalm 130, verse 7, Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. Redemption. Not just redemption, abundant redemption. We should celebrate. We should revel in. We should rejoice in God's amazing grace. Once there was a man, he died, and he appeared at the gate in heaven. There old Gabriel was to greet him. Old Gabe, he told him, he said, here's how it works up here now. You got to get 100 points to get in. You tell me what good deeds you've done, and I'll assign the points accordingly. Well, the man said, well, I was married to the same woman for 50 years and never, ever cheated, not even in my mind. Gabriel said, well, that's good. You get three points. The man comes, three points? Goodness gracious, that's not many. Gabriel asked again, he said, well, what else have you done? He said, well, I went to church every single Sunday and always tied my money. Gabriel said, good, one point. He said, you're being pretty stingy with these points, Gabe. He said, again, well, what else have you done? The man said, well, I built several homeless shelters and fed thousands of folks on every holiday. Gabriel answered, he said, okay, that's worth two points. You're up to five points total. Well, the man was exasperated. Finally, he blurted out, he said, at this rate, the only way I'm getting into heaven, is by the grace of God. And with that, Gabriel said, come on in. (laughs) Paul goes on to tell us in verse 9, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. There's a lot right there. You know, the Bible, the biblical word translated mystery is not what we usually think of when we use that term. When we think of a mystery, we think of Agatha Christie novel or search for a smoking gun or a phenomena that can't be explained or a puzzle that can't be solved, a mystery. But That's not the biblical understanding of the word mystery. A biblical mystery is a truth that would have never been grasped by God alone. It comes to us through revelation, not investigation. It's something that that has been revealed to us by God. You could call a mystery a sacred secret. It may be a truth that's easily understood, but we would have never known it had God, in his good pleasure, not made it clear. Paul took it as a great honor that God had made him privy to his secrets. In his mind, this made him part of God's inner circle. I mean, you don't just tell anybody your secrets, do you? I mean, you share a secret with a confidant, with someone you trust. And this is how God feels about us. In his plan of redemption, he has shared with us the secrets of grace. This was hidden in times past, but it's now been made known to us. I like the Greek term translated mystery. It comes from a root word, which means to wink. (laughs) This is what God has done with you. He's whispered to you a secret, and then he's winked at you. That just kind of lets you know, lets you and him know that you got it. You're sharing something together. You've got something in common that's special. This is what God has done for us. He Winks at us. He's let us in on his grace. The mystery of his grace. This life changing. Eternity altering grace. He's let us in on the secret that grace abounds in Christ. God has shared with us his secret. But there's a difference between our secrets and God's secrets. Hey, if I tell you my secret, you better keep it quiet. You better keep it secret. But God's secrets need to be shouted from the rooftop. They're for sharing, not keeping. Our job is to sing of His grace to a world in need of His grace. Notice God chose to lavish on us His blessings and to reveal to us His secrets by His own good pleasure. In other words, we didn't strong arm Him with our goodness and force Him to reward us. Because of our blessedness, nor were his secrets leaked out by heavenly staffers that couldn't keep their mouths shut. God didn't decide on grace because some loose-lipped angel let the cat out of the bag ahead of time. Not hardly. That's not how it occurred. Paul is clear. This gospel of grace was premeditated. It was predetermined in the mind of God. It was preplanned in his holy heart before time began. Understand this, your redemption is the resolve and idea and creation and ambition of God Himself. Notice verse 8, God purposed in Himself. Redemption isn't even the result of God's foreknowledge. It's not that He looked down the corridors of history to spot those who would one day trust in Him. He didn't choose us in advance because of our future decisions. Paul says there's more to it than that. No, God purposed in himself. The plan for your redemption was initiated by him. It originated in him. Your salvation was born in God's heart. Our redemption is not God's reaction to anything that I am or that I do or that I will do. God purposed in himself to save me. That blows my mind. So why is it so why is it we live as if we're the beneficiaries of God's reluctance that he saved us because he had to why is it that we feel we've been accepted by him begrudgingly that's not true god really wants you your reconciliation to god has been his eternal purpose I got to repeat this because some of you guys are just so thick-skulled, you're not getting it. God really loves you. Ronald Hatch writes, we forget Christianity is God in search of lost men, not men in search of a lost God. God is the one who has initiated this. Of course, we immediately want to know, well, how does this all square with our need for faith? I mean, how can you say God chose all this in advance? Don't I have a choice? And of course you do. The Bible teaches both truths. God chooses and the choice is yours. Both are taught in Scripture. How we go about reconciling, it's a different story. That too is a mystery. But hey, before we try to satisfy our logic and figure it all out ourselves... Why don't we just let the word of God just sort of sit there and stand on its own for a while. And why don't we just enjoy this amazing truth. That God desires us. That he really chose us. He purposed in himself to lavish his grace on us. I'm just going to think about that for a while if you don't mind. And now in verse 10. Paul further defines this mystery that he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, Paul begins this with an imposing word, dispensation. What does that mean? Yet a dispensation is really just another word for a step-by-step plan. You could call it a biblical blueprint or a divine schematic. God's redemption occurs in pre-planned stages. In one sense, we were redeemed. We were purchased and set free by the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. We were redeemed. In another sense, we're being redeemed. We're going to talk next week about how the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to seal us in Christ. And then in another sense, in a third sense, we will be redeemed. Jesus has promised to return and that one day we'll receive our perfect bodies and we'll rule with him over a perfect world. He even tells us when that will occur here in our text. Paul answers, in the fullness of the times. I guess that's a way of saying don't worry about it. It's going to happen in just the right time. God has a precise plan And all who will be redeemed will be on his cue. What matters here is God's motive. Why this plan of redemption? What is his ultimate aim for mankind? Here Paul tells us that God might gather together in one all things in Christ. There it is again, in Christ. That's the key. Everything you see happening in the world today. All of the cosmic tumblers are clicking. All of the puzzle pieces are coming together for one climactic purpose. The crescendo of the ages is about to occur. You know, secular minds, secular historians have searched for a common thread running through history. They've tried to pinpoint a plot, a purpose at work in the universe. And many historians, having looked in the wrong places, have been frustrated Here are a few of their comments. One historian writes, There is no secret and no plan in history to be discovered. Another man writes, I can see only one emergency following another as wave follows wave. That's his idea of history. Still another, The universe is indifferent. Who created it? And then finally, Why are we here on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea. And let me just say, history will make no sense apart from the plan of God. Never forget, history is His story. And God kept His story a mystery. This is why man on his own can never discover, he'll never see God's master plan until it's already been unfolded. You see, it can never be deduced by merely examining events. For ages, God kept his purpose hidden behind the scenes. But it was to Paul, and now to us, that he has finally revealed it. And here he tells us that that silver thread running through the centuries, tying all of history together, is one simple truth. Everything is rolling toward an ultimate climax, and that is this. God is gathering all things together in Christ. History will reach a grand and glorious crescendo when all the redeemed of all the ages come together in Christ Jesus. You see, when Jesus was a baby, his identity was concealed to all but a few. You remember that old man Simeon in the temple? He knew the secret. In Luke 2, verse 34, he spoke, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And this remains true today. Jesus is the hinge on which your future swings. He is the critical character on the stage of human history. He is the pivotal point. Charles Spurgeon put it, Christ is a great central fact in the world's history. To him, everything looks forward or backward. All the lines of history converge upon him. All the great purposes of God culminate. In Him, And I got to tell you, this, my friends, is why I adore him so. This is why I speak his name with reverence. This is why I have deliberately chosen to revolve my world around this man named Jesus and give my life to his disposal. Hey, sin has, ra- has torn this ragged world into shreds. Just look at how fragmented and divided we are. America, in fact, the world for that matter, has never been as splintered as it is today. There's strife and impasse at every turn. Just look at the world today. It's such a troubled place. Here in America, we're in the midst of a government shutdown. We're on the verge of bankruptcy. The richest nation on earth is having problem paying its debts. The terrorist nation of Iran continues to develop nuclear weapons. There's a madman now calling the shots in North Korea. Terrorism threatens us at home and abroad. Would you like for me to continue to make you feel good? You know, I ran across this quote by a British preacher written in 1954. Understand, he was riding on the heels of the Second World War when he said this. I do not know whether another world war is coming or not. But whether it be war or no war, as Christians, we are in this plan of God. No bomb can be invented. No bacteria can be cultivated and used. No chemicals or gases can be brought into use that can ever make the slightest difference to these things. That is God's plan as revealed in Scripture. God's plan will be carried out. And if you are in Christ, you are involved. We are destined to be elevated and restored to what man was meant to be. Let's spend less time reading the newspapers and more time reading the Bible. I believe that's good advice in 1954 and in 2013. Is there any hope for peace and harmony in this world? There is but it won't result from some human achievement or from some human negotiation. And no man will be able to speed it up or slow it down. It will happen in the fullness of God's time and it will be accomplished in Christ. In the short run, no one can predict the future. Of the coming particulars, who can know? But there is one truth we can count on with absolute certainty. In God's sweet timing, In the end, Christ will be the all in all. God's purposes will not fail. Here's the secret the world has yet to see, but it has been revealed to us that God will bring all things in heaven and earth together in Christ. Hey, wink if you know it's true. We share a secret. Your future and my future and everyone's future will culminate in Jesus Christ. You will rise or fall, my friend, based on your relationship or lack of one with Jesus. That's why we need to get busy letting the cat out of the bag and shouting this secret from the rooftops.